it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Tuesday, the 19th of December. I hope you're all well. 
If you're in London, I hope you're enjoying the rain because you deserve it. You had a nice summer and none of the rest of us did. Um, we have news coming out of Nottingham Forest, though not confirmed yet by Nottingham Forest, that Steve Cooper has been sacked. Uh, I think it's a real shame. I think he had done an outstanding job at that club. Getting them promoted when they'd been lost, wandering in the wilderness for years and years. He takes over. Season's already underway. He's done a really good job at Swansea, getting them into the playoffs twice. He was looked at by a couple of Premier League clubs, but nobody took a chance. Forrest had absolutely lost their way. And at the end of September 2021, they appoint him. And he gets them promoted after an unbelievably good run where he takes them from the foot of the table where they look dead and buried. That early in the season, they look dead and buried. He takes them into the playoffs, beats Huddersfield in the playoff final, takes them into the Premier League. Obviously, results started really poorly last season. But the owner who's known for his, you know, quick trigger for changing managers, look at Olympiacos, look at what he's done at Forest. Now, most of the ones at Forest, I think, are absolutely justified. If, if anything, he might have given some of them too long. He doubles down on Cooper, gives him a new contract, backs him publicly. Later in the season, after they've kind of climbed their way out of it and looked like they're going to be fine, they have another bad run of results. But again, he comes out publicly and said that he's backing the manager. They end up surviving. They stayed in the league. They spent some more money in the summer. But unfortunately, at this point of this season, they're in the same position as they were at this point of last season. And the owner has decided that that means there's been no development, no progression. And he's decided to move on. And the Athletic have broken the story and others have now followed. Steve Cooper has been sacked as manager of Nottingham Forest. I have absolutely no doubt that whenever it is that Steve Cooper decides he wants to come back into management, that there will be jobs available for him. I think he's an excellent coach. I think he did lose his way a little bit with Forrest in the last while. I think he became overly cautious. I think he made some strange decisions in terms of team selection, started to rely on players that let him down perhaps because he thought they could take on his tactical instruction a bit better, but their performance level was not up to, up to scratch. He leaves Forrest after 108 games, 42 wins, 30, uh, 27 draws, and 39 defeats. It's a 39% win rate, which doesn't seem particularly good. But again, look at what it is that he did there. Look at the work that he's put in at that club. Look where they were when he took over. Again, he took over the 21st of September. They had won 
one of eight games and had four points and sat 24th in the championship of 24 teams. By the end of the season, he had them in fourth. At one point, he'd had them in third. They lost six of their first seven games before he took over. He took over for match day nine. So they lost six of the first eight. They lost six games the rest of the way. Tucked him into the playoffs, beat Sheffield United on penalties, won the away leg, lost the home leg, won the penalty shootout at home, went and beat Huddersfield at Wembley and tucked them up. Also had a decent run in the FA Cup that year, knocking out Arsenal, Leicester, both Premier League clubs, and Huddersfield, who obviously they'd then beaten the playoffs, lost to Liverpool, who would go on and win the competition. He did a tremendous job. They came up. They went buck wild in the... <laughs> they went buck wild in the transfer market. You'll never see anything like it. Look at the amount of players they brought in. Awani, Bianconi, Hammond, Thompson, Niakate, Richards, Williams... Hennessy, Aguilera, Tofolo, O'Brien, Lingard, Mangala, Dennis, Coyate, Froiler, Gibbs White, Huang, Willie Bolly, Josh Bowler, Serge Aurier. Like most of those, Aurier, to be fair, was after the deadline. He was signed after the deadline because he'd been a free agent, as was Canerich. Then they, in January, went and signed Scarpa, Danilo, Felipe, Shelby, and Awani. Oh, sorry, and NAU. Um, they brought in Henderson, Lodi, Bade on loan in the summer. They brought in Wood and Navas on loan in the January. That's a stupid amount of players. But as I said at the time, almost all of it was necessary. Now, some of it was unnecessary. Uh, Ryan Hammond and Joel Thompson, I assume they're young players that they've never played. Aguilera, he's another young player, was brought in as a prospect. Uh, Huang was brought in and loaned immediately out to, I want to say Olympiacos, and now he's on loan at Norwich. Josh Bowler went to Olympiacos. I think now he's at Cardiff. Um, Canridge came in and left after a seat. Like, Shelby obviously brought in in January. He's now out on loan. AU was a short-term signing. He was out. A, he was a free agent, was brought in just to kind of shore things up. But most of it was needed. Most of it was needed because they lost so many players that season. Uh, players whose contracts were up, players who wanted to leave, players that weren't good enough. And obviously they'd had a bunch of players in on loan the previous season who had played key roles for them. Uh, Zinkernagel, in on loan from Watford, played a key role. He had to be replaced. James Garner was outstanding for them, but he had to be replaced. Max Lowe was important for them. He had to be replaced. Jed Spence was hugely important. He had to be replaced. Keenan Davis came in on loan. He had to be replaced. So all of it had to be done. But it meant that they started last season really poorly. You'll remember they lost to Newcastle. Then they beat West Ham in a bit of controversy with the West Ham having a goal 
disallowed. That was their only win in their first 12 games. They had six points after 12 games. They were bottom of the league and people were writing them off. And then Cooper did what Cooper does and he settled in on a team and he started to work his magic. And after game week 22, he had them up to 13th. Now, results did turn against them again and they went on a long run of 10, 11 games without a win, taking only three points. And that meant that they dropped back into the relegation spots. But then he pulled them out of the muck. Three wins, two draws, and a defeat to Brentford in the last six, inclusive, including a win over Arsenal in the second last game of the season. And they ended up staying up by four points. So that Arsenal game ultimately didn't keep them up, but it did help, of course. The futility of Leicester and Leeds and Southampton were a, a major factor. But still, he kept them up. And when you're a newly promoted team, staying in the division is the only thing that really matters. It's the main thing that you need to hang your hat on, staying in the division. And even in year two, you're really just looking at staying in the division, trying to establish yourself. And you would have thought that after last summer, they wouldn't have gone and bought as many players as they did this summer. But as I talked about, was it yesterday? They went and they bought another platter of players loaned in another group of players and they've made it quite difficult for them so it's not really a huge surprise now through the first 12 games of this season they were actually looking a lot better and they were you know at one point they were sitting in 13th and they were as high as eighth after five games but they've only taken four points from the last eight games and that has caused them to slide back into 17th. Now, there's still five points off the relegation zone, but Everton have had 10 points deducted and are now two points above them. Palace are three points above them. And it would only take, you know, a decent run from one of Luton, Burnley and Sheffield United in conjunction with Forest remaining quite poor for them to slide so I do understand the decision. I think it's harsh, but I don't think you can argue with it too much. Now, what I don't understand is the fact that Nuno Espirito Santo has been talked about as the favourite to replace him. I can't think of much that would be less inspiring. Oliver Glasner is available. Julian Lopetegui is available. They're significantly better managers than Nuno Espirito Santo, who was dreadful at Spurs, pretty poor towards the end at Wolves, and, you know, went to Saudi Arabia and didn't exactly pull up trees and was sacked last month. So I would question whether that's the right replacement to go with. I, th I think there's two outstanding managers sitting out there in Glasner. And Lopetegui. Now, I don't know if Oliver Glasner would take that job, but I'm pretty certain that Lopetegui would. So uh, I just think if you can get him, you get him. You don't. You don't get Nuno. So we'll wait and see 
what happens over the next couple of days with them. If it's Nuno, like I say, it's just, it's very uninspiring. Uh, winners and losers from the Premier League weekend that has just taken place. First winner has to be Arsenal. They put in their best performance of the season against Brighton and they go back to the top of the table. Second winner, I think, has to be Aston Villa. They go a goal down. They face adversity. They're coming off big wins over City and Arsenal. They're full of confidence. They get this significant punch in the face and yet they find a way to win the game. So for me, that's a big win for them. And then I would say Everton. Four wins in a row, playing good football, looking like a cohesive team that makes sense. They finally shaken the Frank Lampard off them. I think Sean Dyche is doing the second best job of any manager in the league this season after Unai Emery. And in fairness, you could make an argument that he's doing a better job if we consider last season and how Villa were last season under Emery, they were outstanding, and how Everton were last season under Dyche, they were dreadful because of what he'd inherited. This season, I think Sean Dyche has done a brilliant job. Like 26 points he's taken from 17 games. Last season, Everton took 36 from 38 games. The season before, they took 39 from 38 games. So they're performing much, much better this year. Obviously, the point deduction thing was hard, but was deserved, was warranted. They cheated and they deserve to be punished for it. There is the lingering threat of another points deduction hanging over them. I still think I shall keep them up. You take 10 points off them now. They're only two points behind Sheffield United, Burnley, and three behind Luton, with a significantly better goal difference than any of them, which means one win could put them above all three, considering how often all three lose. I, I still think he'd keep them up, even if they got another 10-point deduction. I still think Dyche would keep them up. So they're my third winner. My losers has to be Liverpool. Awful. Genuinely dreadful performance. Masters of their own failure, really. Um, no excuse for that type of result, that type of performance. Uh, Manchester City have to be the next one. To lose a 2-0 lead at home to Crystal Palace, who don't score goals. Uh, Palace average a goal a game, and you gave up two. That's really, really poor. And then my third loser. It feels like Brentford. That might be harsh, but it does feel like it's Brentford. Because you were 1-0 up at home with 20 minutes to play. One of your most experienced players gets himself sent off, and Thomas Frank can say what he wants. It is a blatant red card. There's no arguments to be had. And then you give up two late goals. I think Brentford feel like they should be here. I will also add uh, Manchester United for turning up and playing like that. Have some shame, but, you know, it is what it is. 
Uh, I think I'm going to go to a break early today. Come back. We're going to go into a list. We have some power rankings to do. And then we'll do news and gossip and we'll be done. Not a big, big show today. Actually, before we go to break, we do have three games to focus on tonight. We have EFL Cup action. So you get Port Vale at home to Middlesbrough. Borough have been away in every round so far, and they came into the competition in the first round. Um, I think it would be quite rare for a team to make the semifinals of any cup competition had they been forced to play every round away from home. But Borough will be favourites tonight, given that they're a mid-table championship side, whereas Port Vale are a mid-table League One side. Uh, so even with the home advantage, I think you'd fancy Borough, though they're not in great form at the minute, but then neither are Port Vale. They have won their last two, though, so that might give them a little bit of a, an edge. Uh, West Ham will play Liverpool tomorrow night. Tonight we have Everton home to Fulham. Everton obviously in really good form, but Fulham are pretty good this season. I think that's a decent game. Two well-coached sides, some good players. The battle between Onana and Paulini in midfield should be quite interesting. So looking forward to that one. And then Chelsea-Newcastle. Um, both teams with a lot of injuries. Newcastle particularly demolished by injuries, given that unlike Chelsea, they don't have a 300-man squad. I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, I think Chelsea are probably slight favourites, given they're at home. I feel like it's probably going to be a close game. I don't think it's going to be a case where one side wipes the floor with the other. They might all hug and have a little cry to themselves that they both got pummeled by Everton. Um, Because, you know, that's not fun. But I feel like Chelsea, Everton and Borough are the, the teams I'd pick to get through. And then... Liverpool-West Ham tomorrow night. A lot will just depend on who Liverpool play. If they go with a strong team, I think Liverpool should win. If they don't, West Ham will win because West Ham are a good team with a lot of good players and the Paqueta-Kudus-Bowen attack is is really, really interesting. It's a lot of pace, a lot of movement, a lot of creativity and goal-scoring ability. So... That's an odd one for tomorrow. That'll be a good one tomorrow night. The tonight's ones, some of the I mean it's a little bit odd that Port Vale are in the, at this point, but they've had favorable draws, as have Borough. Neither of them had to have had to face a Premier League team yet. Um, but they'll get a Premier League team in the semi-final over two legs. Uh now I will go to break, and when we come back, we'll do our power rankings for central midfielders. So I'll see you after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Right. Welcome back. So uh, today is Central Midfielder Day, and we're going to look at Premier League, World, All Time, and then my kind of favorites in the midfield space. So in terms of central midfielders, what I'm looking for is players that play in the central midfield, obviously. Not defensive midfielders, not box-to-box. Well, sorry, not not defensive midfielders, not attacking midfielders. Guys that play in the centre of the park. Guys that go box-to-box. Guys that do a bit of everything. I've decided to make a, a separate list of deep-lying playmakers. So there will be some on the old-timer list and some in the modern list that would be on it, except I, I would class them more as those deep playmakers. So to give you a couple of examples, Tony Cruz, I would class him more as a deep playmaker than a central midfielder. Uh, I would say historically, Xabi Alonso and Pirlo would be two examples of deep-lying playmakers who I'm not going to include in my central midfield list. So here we go. Starting with the Premier League, I think Bernardo Silva is the best central midfielder in the Premier League. He obviously can play as an attacking midfielder. He can play wide. But KDB is the attacking midfielder in that team. Foden, Doku, Grealish, they're the wide midfielders. He does a bit of everything, but I think his best role in recent years has been when he plays next to Rodri. Rodri is the defensive midfielder and he is the central midfielder. He's the connective tissue in that team. So I've gone for him as my number one in the Premier League. Number two, I've gone Declan Rice. Now, I understand that his manager foolishly wastes him as a number six. That gets none of the best attributes of Declan Rice really at their at their apex. But I've got him number two in my central midfielder list. Number three, I've got Alexis McAllister. Again, his manager is foolishly wasting him as a number six. But as a central midfielder, I think Alexis is one of the very best around. Number four, I've got Douglas Luis, who I'm just a big fan of. I just think he's a very, very good player who does everything to a good level. I think this season in particular, he has been outstanding. I think you'd be hard pushed to find many better performing midfielders than him. Then I've gone for Mateo Kovacic. Now, He hasn't been great this season, but we're looking at body of work, not just one year. And I would argue that he doesn't get into City's best 11, but that's more down to the strength of that squad. Like it is ludicrous, the depth that they have in certain areas and midfield is one of them. They've got Bernardo Kovacic and Matthias Nunes who can all play in that midfield role. Bernardo, like I said, can play a bunch of roles. KDB can play multiple roles. Foden can play multiple roles. 
So they've got just really good, smart, versatile players. And I think he is outstanding. I think he's an excellent footballer. I think he could play for pretty much any team in the country and improve them. So I've got him at number five. Number six, I've gone for Pascal Gross. Now, again, he tends to play here, there and everywhere for Brighton, but his best position is in midfield. And I think this season and the second half of last season, he has been incredibly good. Obviously earned his call up to the German national team late in his career, having this kind of Indian summer. I think he's been fantastic. So I've got him. After that, well, to be fair, there's there's basically the top five, and then it's sort of a drop-off in my view. So Gross is the best of the rest, is how I've kind of viewed this. But next I've got Jensen from Brentford, who's just a really smart, technically sound player who makes really good decisions. He's got good passing range. He's a tremendous set-piece taker. He works very hard. He's solid defensively. I think he's up next for me. Then I'm going to go with a player that burst onto the scene under Steve Bruce. Looked like he was going to be a, you know, a regular in the England squad. Then had a really bad fall off and looked like he was going to be on the way out at Newcastle. And whereas a couple of years previously, he'd been the subject of £40 million bids, it looked like Toon might struggle to get 10 for him. But I really think Sean Longstaff has turned things around brilliantly. And I think he's made himself a vital part of that, that Newcastle team as that sort of connective player who does a bit of everything and does it all well. He's not great in any single aspect other than tracking runners. He is an outstanding tracker. But I do think he's just become a really, really good all-round player. So he's in at number eight on my list. Number nine, I've gone Papi Matar Sar of Spurs. And it is largely recency bias. He has been phenomenal this season like genuinely playing years above his age playing outstanding football I think he has to be in this list I think in in the next year or two we'll see him potentially top of this list as Bernardo ages I think he's got all the tools to be a great all-round box-to-box midfielder the partnership with him and Basuma is tremendous. They can both play both roles, but Basuma is nominally the defensive midfielder and a very, very good one at that. So I've gone for Sar. And the final one on my list, I'm going to go James Garner of Everton. I mentioned him earlier when he was at Forest. He was so good. He was so, so good in that Forest team. His role at Everton's a little bit unusual in that Dekure and Onana are the big physical forces 
they both get forward more than he does. But Onana is the kind of primary ball-winning defensive force in there. But Garner's a really clever player whose positional sense allows him to drop into that role when Everton attack. So he's, when Everton defend, he's kind of the central midfielder. He's the one that kind of buzzes about picking up runners, blocking passing lanes, things like that. When they have the ball, then he'll often just settle into a more central sitting role. Let Onana bomb forward. Onana's playing like sort of an all-round destroyer type of role. Um, but I, I would still kind of tag Onana as the defensive midfielder, Garner as the central midfielder, and then Decore is very much the attacking one. He's the one that gets forward the most to join um, Calvert-Lewin. And what we've seen with Garner as well is Sean Dyche has used him wide at times. And while it's not a role that suits him, he doesn't let them down. So I thought, given their form, given how much I, I've, I've rated him for a number of years... I never quite understood why United didn't give him an opportunity. It's not like they have good midfield options. Um, I thought James Garner was worth uh, was worth throwing in. Now, my world list. So I explained Tony Cruz. He's not. He's on a different list. Um, I would also say that. Luka Modric would have lived on this list for the last 10 years. He doesn't play a whole a whole big role anymore. I don't don't think he's at this level anymore. Number 1 is Fede Valverde. He's the best all-round midfield player on the planet right now. You can argue with the wall, he is world class. He is just a great great player. Number two, I've got Bernardo. Number three, I've got Joshua Kimmich. Now, he's another one that gets wasted as a six, but he is a central midfielder. He's a controlling central midfielder, and he is phenomenal when used correctly. Thomas Tuchel has spoken about the want to play him in his better position, but the lack of a proper defensive midfielder at Bayern over the last few years is the primary reason that Kimmich has been wasted in that role. It doesn't get the best out of him. He's not particularly good at it. But when you play him in his best position, he is incredible. Number four, I've got Nicolo Barella, who I think has actually become quite underrated in a lot of ways. I think he does most things well. He's an immense ball of energy. He is a leader. He's a connector. He's the type of player that can put the team on his back when it needs it. So I've got him at number four. Number five, I've got Pedri. I I just think you'll go a long way before you'll find someone better than him at what he does. The passing, the dribbling, the movement, the intelligence. Like he's, he's small, he's slight, and yet he's tough as nails. He's a plus defensive player. What he offers on the ball, I just don't think he can replicate, really. So he's five. Frankie de Jong is six, primarily because, again, he is being used out of position because Barca don't have a defensive midfielder. And I think Frankie quite likes that role because he gets on the ball so much, but defensively he does lack certain things you'd want to see. 
Uh, he hasn't developed into the player he was expected to be when he was leaving Ajax. I don't think he's a whole lot better than he was when he was at Ajax. I don't think he's lived up to the price tag, but he's still a very good footballer. Uh, seven is Declan Rice. Eight, I've got Ilkay Gundogan. Now, he's not had a particularly great season for Barca, but it is body of work. He Last season, he would have been top three. But he is aging. He is declining. His form hasn't been spectacular. So I've gone with him. Uh, then I've got Alexis McAllister as my number 10. No, is that my, no, my number nine? Sorry, my number nine. I've got Alexis. And number 10 was tough. It came down to two players, really. But one of them I feel is misprofiled as a central midfielder when what he actually is, is potentially the best defensive midfielder the game has seen in 20 years, 25 years. And it's Eduardo Camavinga, who I think as a six or as a five, as it actually is, could potentially be an absolute all-timer. He's the closest thing we've seen to Fernando Redondo. I just, because Real have Chiuameni, and Chiuameni also plays that role and is also outstanding at it, Camavinga's playing as a as more of a central midfielder. He's had some injuries. He hasn't always been first choice. He's in and out of the team. He's played left back. So he doesn't make the grade. If he was playing defensive midfield every game, I think he would be widely seen as a top three defensive midfielder in the game already. Potentially top two with a view to being number one within two years, 18 months to two years. I think he's that special. Um, so the guy I went with was Locatelli, who, again, is often forced to play as a six, but, again, is better next to a six as that connective piece who links defence and midfield, who can run a game for you, who can break the lines with both his dribbling and his passing. He's overlooked for his ability to carry the ball. He's obviously got the passing ability. Everybody raves about his passing ability and has done for years. But when he spots a weakness in the defense and carries it through that, that weakness, he opens up a whole different range of options for Juventus and for Italy. And for me, if I was in charge of the Italian national team, Barella and him, either side of a six, a proper six, is what I'd be looking to put together. Now, just to go on a small little tangent, because, you know, it's what I do. I do think they have that six to play in there. I just don't think they've realized it yet. He is at Torino. He has been fantastic for the last season and a half, maybe even two and a half seasons. But Samuel Ricci, or Ricci is ideal in that role with those two kind of energetic box-to-box players either side of him. He's solid defensively, 
reads the game brilliantly. His positional awareness is fantastic. He's only got two caps as yet, but I think that midfield is potentially really, really special and would give the Italians a really strong centre of the park. And then you look at them defensively. I mean, Bastoni obviously is one of the starting centre-backs. It's time to just go with Scalvini-Bastoni. That as your pairing. That It's time now for that. Adoiji is going to be your left-back long-term. But you do have some other options to use in the shorter term. And at right back for now, like Fede DiMarco would be the, the short-term left back with Doji sort of the long-term view there. Even though DiMarco's only 26, I still think you get you get two years out of him and then you're looking to bring in Doji. At right back for now, you go with Di Lorenzo. And you aim to find the guy who's going to be there long-term. Now, I don't know who that might be, it's definitely not Calabria. Um, I, I actually don't know who it would be. I don't know what up-and-coming uh, right-backs the Italians have, so don't pay enough attention. But I think they've got really good goalkeepers, obviously. Donnarumma is outstanding. He, he hasn't really developed as as well as hoped, but he's still only 24. Uh, Karnasecki, is is very promising. I think Vicario is outstanding, uh, and Murray is pretty good as well. So they've got really good keepers, really good centre backs. You know, you've got plenty of options there. Gatti looks pretty good. Um, Biongiorno, uh, Biongiorno of Torino, he looks really good. Azerbi still kicking about. Baraji still kicking about. Mancini is a very good defender. Lazari is a good defender. Actually, Lazari at right back. He's more of a right back, right winger, isn't he? He might be the option. He's really fun going forward. Um, maybe Caselli could play centre back for you. They've got they've got good defensive options. They've got really good midfield options. That's obviously they've got Tonali and Verratti who. You know, still in the mix. Jorginho still in the mix. Cristante still in the mix. Fratesi's the one that misses out in my team, but I think it just is what it is. And then up front, it's a, it's a bit of a you know a hope and pray because there's loads of talent, but none of them performing consistently enough to really warrant nailing down a spot. Chiesa hasn't been the same since the ACL. Moise Keane is, uh, who knows what you're going to get him from him. Raspadori's inconsistent. Zaniolo's had the injuries. Skamaka's inconsistent. There's loads of talent there. It's just, you know, they've got Berardi as well. It, it's just not, nobody's really claiming a spot for themselves. But the talent is there. I do think in the next two years, the Italian national team will be pretty strong again. Um... Why am I talking about the Italian national team? I was talking about Locatelli. Um, right, I'm moving on then. Locatelli is 10 on my centre midfielders list worldwide. Moving on to my all-time list. 
I have I've one definite honorable mention. There's a bunch, like there's loads. This guy was on my list and I tried to keep him on my list and I, I just couldn't and I ended up knocking him to 11th. Um, Willem van Hennigam, the Dutch midfielder, van Hennigam, the Dutch midfielder uh, who played as part of their team in the 1970s, a legend at Feyenoord, incredible technical ability, like phenomenal range of passing, un- unbelievable weight of passing, super intelligent Great defensively. The only the only weakness in his game was he wasn't quick. He did lack pace. That's it. Everything else about him was incredible. Um, and he was a proper gnarly so and so when he wanted to be as well. Like would would hold grudges and would get players back when the time arose. Um, so he just misses out by like a hair. Also under consideration were the likes of Michael, Ess- or Michael Essien, Michael Balak. But unfortunately, I, just, I didn't have the space for them. So we'll go into the list. Um, close that, close that, close that. Number one, and I don't think there's any debate on this, is Lothar Mateus. Lothar Mateus was a great defensive midfielder, a great number 10, a great sweeper and the best central midfield player the game has ever seen. Lothar Mateus could do everything. Absolutely everything. Diego Maradona said he's the best player I've ever played against. And that alone is enough for me. But you go back and you watch him play. The passing ability, tremendous. The reading the game, the positioning, the understanding of where to be and when to be there, the understanding of timing of pass, his shooting ability from long range, his ability to carry the ball from his own half into the opposition and always make the right decision. Mentally, one of the strongest players there's ever been. 150 caps for the German national team, 23 goals, played for a club that I can't pronounce, then made his name really with Borussia Mönchengladbach, was outstanding for them, moved on to Bayern, was great for them, went to Inter, was great for them, back to Bayern, great for them. Like when he went back to Bayern, he was 31 and people thought he's coming back for a couple more years. He was there eight years. He was still really good up into his late, late 30s. And you look at what he won and what he was part of. Six Bundesligas, two German Cups. This is before the Bundesliga became a procession as well. UEFA Cup, Serie A, another UEFA Cup. Even at 40 or 39, I think he was, um, when he went to play for the New York Metro Stars, now the New York Red Bulls, uh, he was a good player for them in their success of winning the Eastern Conference or Eastern Division, I think it was. Won a World Cup, won a European Championship, won the Ballon d'Or, was unanimously voted the best player of that World Cup in 1990. There was no debate to be had. He was the best player in the world that season. Maradona was still the best player in the world, but for that season 
or that year, that calendar year, January to to December, it was Lothar Mateus. He's just, he could just do everything. And he did it all incredibly well. The only weakness was he was 5'9", but it didn't matter because he was super aggressive. He had a ridiculous desire to win and he would fling himself into things to help his team win. But he could also read the game so much better than everybody else. And he knew that if a long ball was coming in under him, on top of him with a striker in front, he didn't need to worry about winning it. He needed to worry about where it went next. So a little nudge, little hand in the back, or if he told it was going to be a flick on, drop off two, three yards, striker had head the ball on thinking it was going to drop in behind someone and Lothar be there, he'd take it in his chest and he'd start the ball going the other way. Lothar Mateus is the greatest centre midfielder in, in history and there is no debate. Uh, number two is Johan Nieskens for me. Uh, a part of the great Ajax team, a legend of Barcelona, a part of the golden era of Dutch football. Started out as a right back, moved into central midfield and genuinely after Johan Cruyff, he's probably the second best Dutch player of all time. And he could do pretty much everything. You needed them to dribble. You need them to carry the ball. You need them to cross, to pass, to shoot. Whatever you needed, he could do it on the ball. And off the ball, he was very, very good. Just a superbly talented player. And he was tough as well. Like nobody was getting the better of him physically. He wasn't the biggest but he was strong as an ox. He was like wiry. Do you ever see the film The Replacements and Reese Evans is in it and he plays a kicker and he's real skinny, but he's wiry. He's kind of like that. He was pretty skinny, but he was wiry. And he had maybe the best engine in the history of the game. He could run. If he was playing now, it would embarrass some players how much ground he could cover. The closest thing to him now is, is Fede Valverde. Fede Valverde reminds me of Johan Nieskens. Very, very similar players. But Nieskens just had a little bit extra from a technical point of view. And Fede's a great technical player, but Nieskens had a little bit more. Three European Cups with Ajax, Cup Winners Cup with Barca, multiple league titles, two-time World Cup runner-up, third place at the European Championships in between those World Cups. Just a great, great player. At number three, I've gone for Andreas Iniesta. You could argue he was an attacking midfielder. I don't think he was. I think he was a central midfielder. I think they played two central midfielders and a, and a holding midfielder with that great Barcelona team. And he's just, he's one of the most enjoyable players ever to watch. He's 5'8". He's lightweight. He's balding. He doesn't look like he's going to be much of anything. And all of a sudden, he's the best player on the pitch, no matter who's on it, including at times Lionel Messi. His ability to just take over a game and play it at his pace 
manipulate the defense to his will. You'll rarely ever see, I don't know that we've seen a midfielder with the ability to manipulate defenders the way he could. Not with anything he would do, with the threat of what he could do. Balance, wonderful center of gravity. A ball glued to his foot, just glued to his foot. I, I, the, him, him dribbling in and out of players, making them miss, embarrassing them, is one of the great joys of watching football over the last 20 years. An amazing career with Barcelona. Obviously then went on to play um, for Vissel Kobe in Japan for five years. He was 34 leaving Barca. And people thought he's probably going to just retire in a year or two. Five years later, he leaves this Kobe. And he's still playing. He's playing for Emirates in the UAE. And he seems to be still enjoying his football, enjoying life. What a player. What an amazing player. I, again, he's one we won't see the likes of again. And you look at the success he's had. Nine league titles. Six Copa del Rey. Four European Cups. Two UEFA Super Cups. Three World Club Cups. Went to Japan and won the Emperor's Cup, the Japanese Super Cup and the J1 League. With his national team, he won the under 16 Euros. The under 19 Euros the next year. And then obviously as part of the greatest international team of all time that won three major tournaments in a row, the 08 Euros, the 2010 World Cup, and the 2012 uh, Euros. I think he's one of the best players not to win the Ballon d'Or. I think he's very unfortunate that at times he's underrated because he played at Messi. But there were times when he was better than Messi. There were many games where he was better than Messi, where it was him who won Barcelona the game. Messi might have got the last goal, but Iniesta was the one that had won the game for them. What a player. What an amazing player. Uh, number four, I've gone Paul Breitner. Played midfield, played left back. Again, just one of these players from the 70s and early 80s who could do everything and do it all at a really, really high level. I might have had him in my left back list as well. I can't remember. I don't know where it is. But I've got him in my midfield list because he's genuinely that good. He is, like many Germans, including the man who was number one on this list, a complete arsehole. And if you read books written by a lot of his teammates from that time, they talk about what a complete arsehole he was. Um, played for Bayern, played for Real, played for Eintracht Brunschweig for one year. Not really sure why. And then he played for Bayern again. Only won 48 caps for the national team. And people might think that's because, you know, oh, he wasn't a great player. No, he was. Genuinely, he was a truly elite player. Good at everything. No weakness to his game at all. 
but fell out with people involved in the national team, fell out with people at Bayern, fell out with everybody at different times, but still a genuinely incredible footballer. Just a smidge above Xavi, who's next on my list. And again, I mean, 5-7, you look at him, you think you'd run him over. And yet he went toe-to-toe with the biggest, the baddest, the strongest, and murked every one of them with his brain. One of the smartest players who's ever lived, rarely gave the ball away, could run any game with any group of teammates, so vital to Barcelona for, I mean, again, what an incredible career. Plays for Barca up until 2015, leaves, goes and plays for Al Saad for four years. Just just incredible. Uh, Eight league titles, three Copa del Reyes, four European Cups, two World Club Cups, Qatari Star Leagues, Qatari Cup, Sheikh Jassim Cup, uh, Amir of Qatar Cup, under-20s World Cup winner with Spain, and then obviously two-time European champion and world champion. Um, Just phenomenal. Phenomenal. Maybe the most intelligent player ever. Maybe the most intelligent player ever. His ability to process situations just rapidly and never give the ball away. And I know at times people got a bit bored of the the ticky-tacky football, but when Barca got in their flow with Alves and him and Busquets and Iniesta and Pedro and Villa and Messi, pinging the ball around endlessly, but him as the center point of it all, like the center point of a pentagram with moving parts around him. And he always picked the right pass. Sensational footballer. Next on my list, I've got Clarence Seydorf. I, I, I love this kid from when he was at Ajax, a kid. He's six years older than me. I loved him from when he was a kid at Ajax and I was a kid. Um, Phenomenal. Just, again, good at everything. Quite like Mateus, could play as a six, could play as a ten, could play right back, could play sweeper. But as a central midfielder, it's where he really shone. The connective piece between Pirlo and Kaka. The connective piece between Redondo and Raul at Real in his early career. Comes through at Ajax, has a great three years there, goes to Sampdoria, spends one year there, Real Madrid come calling, he goes to them, four years, incredible player, moves on, at this point still only 24 by the way, moves on to Inter, was up and down at Inter, it didn't really suit how they wanted to play, and they wouldn't adapt to what would have made sense for him and used him in weird positions, he played left wing in one game, and he was the best player on the pitch, and he got hooked after an hour. Um, went on to AC Milan, and most people will remember him from his time at AC Milan. Spent 10 years there. And then in one of the cooler moves that 
a, a great player has done. He went to play in Brazil because he grew up loving Brazilian soccer and he wanted to go and play there. So he went to Botafogo and he played there for two years. He won 87 caps in the Netherlands. He has not been a good manager. We'll, we'll say that. He is not a good manager. But an amazing player, genuinely. And a deceptively great athlete as well. Never looked like he was the quickest, but could outsprint outsprint anybody when needed. Won two Eredivisie titles in the Champions League with Ajax. Won La Liga and a Champions League with Real. Won two European Cups and two Champions Leagues with AC Milan. <coughs> Just a great, great player. You don't win European Cups with three clubs as a key player for each of them without being a great player. And he genuinely was incredible. Next up then is Brian Robson. Um, I think he's the best English centre midfielder of all time, and I don't think it's really close. Uh, some may ask where Steven Gerrard is. He is not. He was never a great centre midfielder. He will be in my attacking midfielder list. Uh, some may ask where Frank Lampard is. He is not and was not a great centre midfielder. He was a tremendous attacking midfielder. Um, but Brian Robson is a centre midfielder, a guy who did everything, who broke up play, carried the ball forward and scored 10 to 15 goals a season when fit. Plagued by injuries late in his career. And unfortunately, a lot of people only remember the end of his career, the last, say, four years at United, where he was really struggling to stay fit, and I think he was struggling a bit with off-field issues as well. But a great, great player for West Brom, a great player at United, a great player for England, whose career for England was ruined by injury, kept missing tournaments, or he'd go to a tournament, and then he'd get injured, but he still won 90 caps. Um, Won two league titles with United, but he was a bit par player. Three FA Cups, two of which he was by far the best player in the team. Won a League Cup and a Cup and his Cup at the end as well. But his best years were 79-80 through to 87-88. Now, there's a few seasons there where he had injuries and he, he missed games. But when he was fit, he was unstoppable. 11 and 42, 11 and 47, 15 and 49, 18 and 47, 14 and 46, and 11 in 48. That's six seasons out of nine. He was just a different class and he could do everything. He was a one man mission in midfield. You need them to man mark somebody, absolutely. You need them to play off the striker, absolutely. The players of his era, Talk about him in awe for what he could do, for the ability to do everything. If it wasn't for injuries, I think he'd be higher on this list. Uh, next up then is Piri, Jose Piri, great Real Madrid central midfielder of the 60s and 70s, played for Spain, 141 caps. Just a tremendous player. Strong as an ox, brave as anything. Would play through injury, played with a broken arm, played with a bro broken clavicle, didn't care. Just went out there, did his job. Was part of a Real team that won 
10 league titles, four Copa del Reyes, and did win a European Cup, but it was he was a squad player at the time in 1966. Um, just a, another great all-rounder, you know? And that's what I've been looking at with this list, is all-rounders. Guys that can give me a bit of everything. If I need you to do this, can you do it? And all of these guys tick every box. And if you're putting together an all-time Real Madrid eleven, this guy is an automatic pick in midfield next to Fernando Redondo. He just is. You know, none of your Casemiro nonsense. It's this guy in midfield next to Redondo. None of your Makaleli nonsense either. Not having that. It's Piri, it's Redondo, that's it. Great, great player. This one, I don't think anyone will complain that he's on the list. Might complain that he's ahead of number 10, because number 10 is historically more lauded, held in higher esteem, I don't know. Uh, But Patrick Vieira is number 9. Now, again, some people think he was a defensive midfielder, and at times he was, but his best role was as a box-to-box midfielder. When he played with Manu Petit, when he played with Gilberto Silva, when he played with Emerson, and he played as a box-to-box midfielder, and he did a bit of everything, Patrick Vieira was incredible. Like, ferocious ball winner, great ball carrier, very underrated passer of the ball, smart, tough, leadership, great positionally, tremendous defensive player. And the, the size and length that he had allowed him to cover so much ground. Phenomenal. Phenomenal player. One of the great Premier League players. Three league titles with Arsenal, two at Juve, three then with Inter Milan, four FA Cups, won an FA Cup at Man City when he was kind of clinging on at the end. Um, Won a World Cup, won a European Championships, never got his European Cup. Never got his European Cup. Similar to Matthias. You know, some players just don't get to win it. Um. He's obviously now manager of Strasbourg. It's not going particularly well. Um, he at Palace it did okay, it went okay and then it went poorly. At Nice it went okay and then it went poorly. Um, I don't know if management is for Patrick, but football certainly was. He was a he was a genuinely great player. And the Premier League, when it was him and Roy Keane kicking seven shades out of each other, was a much better place to be. Uh, number 10 on the list is, is Socrates uh, of, obviously, Botafogo, Corinthians, Fiorentina, Flamengo, Santos and Botafogo again. Uh, did play for Garford Town once, which is a bit mad. Um, obviously, best known for his time with Brazil as, as the brain of that Brazilian team in the early 80s. Like, Zico gets so much of the credit, but the brain of that team was, was Socrates. And then... You, know, you look at that team, you look at Falcao, we, he'll be on the defensive midfielder list. Toninho, he'll be on the defensive midfielder list. Eder was close to being in consideration for this list. And obviously Zico, what a group, what an incredible group. There's a reason that 1982 Brazilian team is seen as the best team that didn't win the World Cup. But him with that kind of upright, elegant way and his ability to carry the ball, pick a right pass and just always be where he was needed, his leadership, the intelligence that he played with, 
the fact that he was also maybe the coolest player to ever play the game. He's got to be in. He's number number 10. Uh, so I've gone with a five favorites. I've got Lothar Mateus, Iniesta, Sedorf, Vieira, and Socrates. So that's my five. And that is our central midfielder list wrapped up. We will move to news. Uh, Thomas Muller has signed a new one-year contract extension with Bayern. Um, Arsene Wenger, who I can only think is slowly losing his mind, has said that the World Club Cup nonsense will help football. Um, it might help your bank balance, Arsene. It's not going to help anyone else. Nottingham Forest have made it public and official that they have sacked Steve Cooper. Uh, and it does look like it is going to be Nuno Espirito Santo who will replace him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is apparently no plan to regulate shin pad size. Some of the shin pads we're seeing now are ridiculous. And when someone gets their leg badly injured, I think we might get a bit of a reckon reckoning on it. Uh, there's not a whole lot else. Uh, Reading owner Dai Young fined 20000 for failing to deposit wages. Um. I think it's time that this gentleman be removed because Reading are a club very much heading for the wall and he is playing a significant part of that. So, yeah, maybe time to uh, to get him out the door and find real owners for Reading Football Club. Hanita Mayazawa, Manchester United women's midfielder, has suffered a fractured ankle on international duty. She has had surgery. Uh, that's probably going to be her out for four to six months, I would guess. That seems to be all we have. We will do the gossip and we'll get done. Nottingham Forest at the point, Nuno, yada, yada. Manchester, oh, Sirhai Garassi, just someone sign him, please, so he's not in this every day. Manchester United football director John Murtaugh was in Saudi Arabia for transfer talks with the club willing to sell Jaden Sancho, Rafael Varane, Anthony Martial and Casemiro. They're over desperately, desperately trying to flog these players. Uh, the Manchester Evening News claims Varane is hopeful United will trigger the one-year extension in his contract. Seems unlikely. Barcelona, well, they might actually because they wouldn't want to leave losing for free having spent such a lot of money on him. Barcelona are ready to listen to offers for Rafinha with Manchester United considering a swap deal for Jadon Sancho. I doubt there's any truth in that at all. Newcastle United Sporting Director Dan Ashworth is the Ineos Group's prime choice to assume the role at Manchester United, although they remain open to retaining Myrtle on a mess. Uh, I don't think Dan Ashworth will take that job. Tottenham have held talks over a potential move for Jean-Claire Tadebo. If they landed him and moved to a back three, they'd be a big problem for everybody. If they could go to Debo, Romero, and Van de Ven in front of Vicario with Poro and Adoji as wingbacks, that would be pretty special. That's a near-perfect defensive group. Romero in the middle of a back three is a monster. 
and having Van de Ven and Tadebo either side, like you just go, you couldn't beat them. They'd be aerially dominant. They'd be unbelievable in terms of recovery pace. One v one, they're all brilliant. You'd be relying on mistakes. Poro and Adoji are wing backs by nature, so they'd be unleashed. Saren Basuma holding the midfield, allowing those wing backs to push on. And then Kulisevsky and Madison behind Sun. Oof, that could be very, very good. Wolves are poised to report financial losses of 65 million, but will target two new signings in January. Victoria Pleasant striker Rafiu Durasinmi yeah, uh, remains a target, uh, though apparently Eintracht Frankfurt also interested. Fulham are weighing up a move in January for Montpellier's 23-year-old Nigerian forward, Acor Adams. So many really good Nigerian forwards around right now. It's very, very unusual how many they have. That national team is going to be absolutely stocked. With, they've got some good midfielders, but they've got loads of great strikers, wide players, and like no, no defenders at all, really. Um... Barcelona could terminate Clement Langley's loan at Villa. That makes sense, I suppose. Uh, Chelsea are prepared to sell Ian Matson in January. Man City, West Ham, Borussia Dortmund, Napoli and Roma all interested. Chelsea have no intention of letting Noni Mudeki leave on loan. Okay. Aaron Ramsdale has been linked with Chelsea, but the Blues are unlikely to sign another shot stopper, which yeah, makes sense. I mean, look, Ramsey's not going to... Uh, Ramsey, Ramsdale... He's not going to be the answer to any problems. Juve have opened talks at Man City about Calvin Phillips. Makes sense. Phillips next to Locatelli would be a pretty good fit. Bayern Munich and Germany forward Thomas Muller signed a new contract. Uh, Bayern Munich have called off a January move for Ronald Arreo, but could reassess in the summer. God, I'd love him at Liverpool. He is unbelievably good. Uh, Kylian Mbappe and Luis Enrique's relationship at PSG has deteriorated. Not surprised. I think Mbappe falls out with most people, doesn't he? Barcelona president Joan Laporte says the club will target a lone midfielder in a deal similar to the one that bought Edgar Davis to the club in 2004. Right. Okay. Uh, Tony Cruz is considering coming out of international retirement to play at the next Euros for Germany, which I think will be a huge boost for Germany. Uh, Paolo Xavier has left his role as Real Madrid's Latin America scout to join Arsenal and will work in South America with two of the scouts. So, okay, fair enough. That's it. That's all we have today, folks. I'll see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Network.